We are continuing our time in Romans, and uh, up to this point, we really see Paul um, getting and moving from his introduction. And we ended last uh, last Sunday. Basically, we we went through several verses, but the main ones that that we transitioned into that where it's, we're going to continue to unpack more and more. Um, I know some of you were like, well, we spent a lot of time on those other verses, and then the, the key verses that is kind of the theme throughout all of Romans, we didn't spend as much time, even though my sermon was well over an hour, um, I didn't spend as much time on verses 16 and 17. With that being said, it's because Paul is going to unpack 16 and 17 for us in a way that um, if you have not really studied Romans, it's going to be unpacked in a way that is uh, um, very, very specific, very detailed, and something that cannot be ignored whatsoever. So I, I'm just going to reread verses 16 and 17 as we do our recap and our focus before we uh, get into our time together this morning. And it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We see here in verse 16 that we should not be ashamed of the gospel. And this is something as an introduction to what? To this whole letter, to the region, to the area, to all of the believers in Rome. To not be ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God. Salvation is the power of God. The good news is the power of God by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Verse 17, it says, For in it the righteous of God... Uh, the righteous of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we really looked at the word righteousness and what that means, right? What, how we can understand that and how our faith brings righteousness, how our salvation brings righteousness and looking at what righteousness truly means. Now, we all know that we uh, are sinners, even though we are saved by grace as believers, if you are a true professing Christian, that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, and from there, understanding that, you know what, we do make mistakes, and it's part of the sanctification process. The process is of, as of us continuing to go down that path in the Lord's will to be shaped and molded into the men and women that God has called us ultimately to be. But in and through that, um, righteousness is someone who is right, who is perfect, who has essentially uh, has it all together. And as that righteousness, the only one that was fully righteous to ever walk this earth was Jesus Christ. And as we strive and we're called to strive, we're commanded to strive to be more like Christ each and every day. We are never fully righteous, right? This side of heaven. With that being said, God sees us through Christ. Therefore, he sees us as righteous. And throughout the scriptures, we see the Bible reference us uh, reference believers as righteous men, righteous women, but ultimately the full, specific, detailed definition of righteousness, uh, we won't achieve that until we are with God in glory. We are perfected. But one of the things we need to understand with righteousness, there's the other side of that coin, unrighteous. There are the righteous and the unrighteous, and God, uh, through Paul, is going to lay that out in detail. But before we go any further, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for our time together so far this morning. 
Thank you for our time of worship through song and praise and the reading of your word. We ask that you'd be with us, not only through your word, but through the Holy Spirit, that we'd be able to see beyond ourselves, that we would not rely on our emotions, our situation, our opinions, our bias, but we'd rely on your word and the Holy Spirit. So Lord, during this time, May we be fully submissive to you, not ourselves. May this message be of you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. It was interesting, um, there was a a time this week I was uh, spending some time with my son Abram, and he's like, Daddy, can we just lay down together and... He loves to lay down with me, and uh, he's a snuggler, and so he loves to snuggle, hang out, and uh, and I just looked at him. I said, hey, I love you, buddy, and he goes, thanks, Dad. He's like, you love me a lot, and I said, I love you more than anybody else, and then he corrected me, and he goes, Daddy, you can't love me more than anybody else. You're supposed to love God first. I was like, oh, Okay. And so I have this seven-year-old teaching me about God's word. And he goes, we have to love God first, Daddy. I was like, okay, I understand, bud. But I, I love you more than anybody else. I was like, well, no, no, Daddy, because God loves me more than you. I was like, okay, all right. Um, and so I didn't know I was going to get a theological lesson from my seven-year-old uh, spending some time with my son. But it really, it really got me thinking and wondering about God's love. And as we already went, we, we looked at righteousness last week and, we, and, and our faith, and, and a lot of that is connected with how much do we truly love God? Because God has already dis- displayed his love for us on the cross through Jesus Christ. And we see that. And we see the gospel. We see the good news. And we see that brings righteousness, brings salvation in and through Christ, being justified. But how much do we really love God? And as, I, and as I pondered that, and I looked at that, it was like, wow, it really brings things into perspective. Because a lot of times we are, we are very um, quick to say how much we love something. Man, I love that food. Oh, I love this team. I love this person. I love doing this. I love doing that. But how frequently do we say, we love God. Maybe we say it in our prayers, or we say it when we're supposed to. I love God. I love God. But is it part of our everyday life to say that we love God? And as I, be, and as, as I was preparing this week for this message, one of, the thing, one of the things that really struck me, and we'll see it as we dive into our um, few verses this morning, is well, if I really love God, I must hate sin. I must hate sin. Just as righteousness is on one side of the coin, on the other side of that coin is unrighteousness. Just as loving God is on one side of the coin, hating sin is on the other side of the coin. We cannot cling to sin and to the cross at the same time. It's one or the other. And it really began to put things into perspective for me. 
And it's amazing what a seven-year-old can teach you if you listen. In the same way, it's amazing how one another can edify, sharpen, and spur on if we listen. So this brings me to my text this morning as Paul transitions from talking about faith and righteousness and the introduction of his letter to unrighteousness and sin. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now we're looking at three verses this morning, okay, only three. I didn't want to try to jam-pack everything because Paul gets very specific in looking at these things. And I want to make sure we spend the time necessary going slow from this point on, really looking at what Paul is unpacking, even though it's all on the same topic and subject, because starting from um, verse 18, going all the way through chapter, chapter 3, like halfway or three-quarters of the way through chapter 3 of Romans, Paul's going to hit this subject of unrighteousness and sin. And one of the things we need to understand is it is very important for us to understand because we must hate sin just as much as we love God. If you're already there, please follow along as I read Romans 1, verses 18, 19, and 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Amen. We see very quickly this transition and Paul shifting and Paul making some very, very strong Claims, not only claims, but statements. One of the things we, can, we cannot overlook. We cannot overlook. Now, as Paul transitions, he, we are going to take a deep look at the wrath of God. The wrath of God. And to help us understand that we need... Um, it's not just righteousness that we need to focus on. It's understanding what is unrighteous, what is sin. Because a lot of times people think that I just need to focus on the positive things. I need to focus on the good things. I need to focus on the righteous things of God. But see, here's the thing. As we focus on one thing and we never focus on the other, then how are we going to know if we're doing something unrighteous? See, this is where Paul begins to get into the detail to, where he, to, to really unpack sin to unpack ungodliness, to unpack unrighteousness, because ungodliness, right, is a rejection uh, by sinners, and unrighteousness is something that uh, uh, believers or so-called believers sin or do things that are not righteous, therefore they are unrighteous. And we're going to dig into this quite a bit, but one of the things we need to see very, very clearly is we cannot focus just on one thing. We cannot focus just on one thing. 
because how much you hate sin is directly connected to how much you love God. How much you love God. And it's the same way. If we say we love God, but we don't do his commands, what does the scripture say? Then you don't love me. If you don't obey my commands, then you don't love me. It's directly connected to hating sin. If you don't hate sin and live a life that shows that you hate sin and reject sin, then we don't love God. Keep that in mind as we continue to press on and we unpack these three verses this morning. Now, the wrath of God, this this does not refer to God's emotion, God's reaction to something, right? Because God is all-knowing. This is part of his divine nature. This is part of his deity, his understanding, right? It's just not uh, somebody does something we don't like and we have a reaction emotionally. This is not an emotional reaction by God. This is a legitimate stance, right, position that is ongoing from the beginning to the end of time. His wrath. To his action, basically we need to understand that the wrath of God is an action of God judging and punishing people for their sins. For God would not be a righteous God if he did not punish sin. Now, a lot of times, and I'm going to, when I, I'm, I'm a little bit ahead in my notes, but I'm going to get to it later, and it'll be a reminder, but a lot of times we think, right, that God's judgment is later, right, when we come before the judgment seat of Christ. That's another judgment, okay, and I'm going to break that, I'm going to give you a little more detail on that later, but there is judgment that happens now, and we're going to see that as we make our way through the rest of Romans chapter 1 and even chapter 2 and then going into chapter 3. God judges sin now. His, that's where his wrath comes in. The word wrath, orge, okay, it should be up there. Oh, we're kind of, there we go. In the Greek, it's pronounced orge, all right? It means anger, obviously wrath. Some uh, literal translations have the word rage in there. A lot of theologians don't like to put rage because it gives a very negative emotional response or out-of-control response, but essentially the best, the, 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 the best literal, literal way for us to understand how much God hates sin is he rages against it. He has anger against sin. He has wrath against sin. He has rage against sin. One theologian put it this way, and this is, comes from some of the statements that I've made in the beginning. A wrath of God, okay, who would not love good unless he hated evil? It's basically saying God's wrath would not exist, okay, if he didn't love good because he must hate evil in order to love good. Do we get that? God must hate evil in order to love good. Why is that? Because then if there's no hatred for evil, if it's flippant, if there's no consequence, everything is flat, everything is acceptable, there's no absolute truth, 
then there's no good and evil. Everything's just okay. There's no bad. There's no right. There's no wrong. Sound familiar? It's basically what our society is moving towards, have been moving towards for years. Something that I taught on close to 15 years ago, that we are eliminating the essence of absolute truth within our society, within our culture, in our school systems, and in our churches. There's no longer an absolute truth. God is absolutely righteous. Sin is absolutely wrong. In absolute truth, it is black and white. It is a yes and no. There's no middle road to heaven, the scripture tells us. There is the wide gates to hell and the turn style, the single file line into heaven. We must not get it twisted. We must not get it mixed up. We must not allow the world to seep in and continue to change the definitions of the, of the scriptures, of the theology, of the doctrine in which the Bible teaches us. We must hate evil. We must hate sin. To love God, we must hate evil. We must hate sin. It irks me when I hear these fluffy, seeker-sensitive individuals who love to say, well, I don't want people to know what I'm against. I only want people to know what I'm for. Are you saved? Because you have to repent of your sins, so if you're repenting of your sins and you're against these sins and you're for God, so therefore you have to be against something. Well, I don't want people to know. Well, then are you ashamed of the gospel? Are we beginning to see the connection to the first 17 verses of this letter? Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Live in faith and righteousness. And we go... And we see here immediately, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Of who? Of men, of everyone. We're looking then in just a second on why. But we can see a lot of it. Now, I, I don't have it up there. I added this later. Okay, turn with me to 1 John. We must hate evil. We must hate sin. Well, Pastor Raph, hate is such a strong word. Okay, look, don't try to censor me. Hate is a strong word. That's why we're talking about it. We're going to be talking about it for weeks, okay? And if it's not something you want to hear about, then take a sabbatical. Watch a different church sermon. I, it, I'm here to preach God's word, and that's what I'm called to do, and that's what I'm faithful in doing. This orge this understanding that the, the wrath of God is essentially communicating to us God's anger, God's wrath, God's rage against sin. And it's used often. Okay, hopefully you're in First John. We're going to be in chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, starting in verse 14 says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. A lot of times we have a hard time connecting to things of the flesh and things of the world that is sin, right? And if we love these things and we cling to these things above the things that are of God, above the cross, he does not abide in us. We must hate sin. Why? Because as it says here, and you have overcome the evil one. How have we overcome the evil one? Because of Christ. So if you've truly overcome the evil one, then why would we, why would we cling to the things of the evil one? Let's take it a step further. Turn, to, turn one more page over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning and also practices lawlessness, sin is lawlessness. So it says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Why? Because it's a law we shouldn't sin. Verse 5, you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Verse 10, by this it is evident, listen very closely, it is evident who are the children of God. So it's saying right here, it is clear, it is evident, it should be very simple for us to see who are the children of God. Oh, you can't judge my salvation. You kidding me? I'm not. The scripture is. And who are the children of the devil? So you can make a distinction on who are for God and who are against God. Basically, the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Very quickly, we can see here in 1 John in chapter 2 and chapter, and when I can go on, previous verses, verses after what I've read, you can keep looking at the context and see very clearly, very clearly, we should hate sin. We should hate sin. Those living in habitual sin, those that are confronted, and, and, and I've been in this situation um, more times than I would like to even count. But the thing is this, they choose to be in sin. But to them, it's not sin. It's like, oh, well, and they make excuses. Paul begins to address this on why, why they think the way that they think. It's very simple. Or, hey. This word wrath 
W-R-A-T-H. Orge. We need to understand this is a direct communication of the hatred of sin that God possesses. And it's not an emotion. It's not a reaction. We can see it in many other verses in, in, the, in the book of Romans. I'm not going to list them all because we're going to be hitting them quite a bit. Um, we can also see it in Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 3. I can give you a whole list. I'm not. These are just, just a few. But Paul is giving us a, tra- a transition from righteousness and talking about righteousness as he, he's greeting believers and now going to unrighteousness because these believers that he has grasped their attention now to not be ashamed of the gospel and to live by faith and in righteousness. Now he's saying, look, this is what unrighteousness looks like because for, it seems that you have forgotten. They're dealing with much sin in the church. You see, that's the thing. That's the thing that I adore, that I love, that I long to see in Paul's writings is him confronting the church over and over and over again. Why? Because so much in the church, we turn a blind eye to sin. We turn a blind eye to sin. And it's something that is taboo in a sense that we don't talk about. We don't do it. This is in every church. Don't get me wrong. There's churches out there that are faithful and, and do an amazing job. And this is one of the things um, why I enjoy smaller church. I mean, to be honest, we can't hide, right? We can't just slip in and slip out. That's one of the reasons why there's a lot of people that leave our church. It's like, ah, I like bigger church. They like to slip in and slip out. That's fine. Go to a bigger church. I I don't have a problem with that. But those that come and say, I like small church. And then I always ask them, well, what if we, what if God grows our church to be a bigger church? They don't know how to answer that question. And I've been part of many different churches. I've been part of churches that are 2,000 in attendance to, to our small, humble church that we have now. But the bottom line is this. We can't hide. We shouldn't. Why? Because it's unrighteousness. It's ungodliness. What does God say? That the wrath that he has will come for it. Those that live habitually in sin with no conviction have never had a righteousness about them to begin with, the scripture tells us. So as he gives us this transition we can begin to see and we're, we're going to get to it later in romans 3 but i'm going to we're going to hit it here in just a moment um, briefly um, but we're all born sinners we're all born sinners going all the way back to genesis 3 we're all born sinners and paul mentions it very specifically in romans chapter 3 but see the thing is is that we're dead in our trespasses but we're only alive in christ Right? We know that. Paul's already stated that. Our only hope is in Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone. No one escapes it. No one escapes it. Apart from the immaculate conception of Christ, and that's something we'll be celebrating later this month, 
the celebration of Jesus' birthday, otherwise known as Christmas. We are all born into sin. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's only one way. But we can see here, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now he lets us know that it comes, his wrath, right, comes from where? From him. Comes from heaven. If we go back to our, our text, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed. Okay? His wrath is revealed. His hatred for sin is revealed. How is it revealed? It's revealed from heaven. It's revealed from heaven. Wow, what? Should we be looking to the sky? No. It, God's word. But it comes from heaven. We must not misunderstand that. And it says, comes from heaven, right? Revealed from heaven. I'll get, I want to get to that word revealed in a moment. But against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Okay? Of men. All this, this understanding of his wrath is being... It's being exposed to us. It's being revealed to us from heaven to who? To all of mankind. It's essentially what it's saying. Now, all this ungodliness and unrighteousness as it's being revealed, this wrath as we can see it taking place before our very, very eyes, more now than even so um, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, we see God's wrath being revealed. It's not just something that is waiting for us after we die. Okay, a lot of times we think that the judgment that we're going to receive is later. And it's like, you know what? I'll just receive my judgment later. Well, if it happens, it happens. And there's this attitude that people have of, you know what? I'm going to do what I want now. And when I come before God, then and, you know, I'll, say what I, I'll say my piece, and it is what it is, and whatever it may be. But that's not the case whatsoever. God's wrath now is something that is not to be meddled with. It's not something to be played around with. It's not something for us to try to negotiate, essentially. And his wrath is not es- es- eschatological, okay, It comes from eschatology, which is what end times, which is ultimately after what our death, right? The rapture, so on and so forth. Basically, when we go to heaven, when we come before the the judgment seat of Christ, then yes, Christians, believers will come before the judgment seat of Christ, not to give an account of their sins, but to give an account of being stewards of what God has given them. Why? Because our sins have been forgiven past, present, and future. So therefore, when we come before Jesus Christ as believers, we will be judged on the stewardship of what he has given us. But see, non-believers are judged on their sins. And so the wrath of God comes not just up in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ, but it comes here on earth. It's still a very present reality, and it's taken place right before our eyes. God's wrath. Do we see it? 
doesn't take long for us to turn on the television if you watch television um, or to watch uh, social media and see his wrath being revealed. We see that here in, in verse 18, that his wrath is being revealed to all the unrighteous, all of the ungodly, right? And this being revealed, it, it, it helps us understand that it's right now. It's right in front of us, as I was just mentioning. Because in the Greek, it, 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 it's a very long Greek word. I'm not going to put it on the board. I'm not going to try to do that, okay? But it essentially... It's, it essentially tells us that it's right now and ongoing. So his wrath being revealed is right now and ongoing, okay? Because a lot of times it's like, oh, well, it happened here or it happened here. And we look for pinpoint instances, right, of it, of it happening. But the thing is, is that it's ongoing. It's right now and it's ongoing and it's what? All mankind. Essentially, this is the divine wrath in the lives of the ungodly. But guess what? It's also the divine wrath of, of God in, those that, in some of those that are saved. Because there are a lot of believers out there that are, that are committing sins or living in sin. And God's going to pull them out. Thing is, is that once they're saved, they're saved. But sometimes we think we're saved and we're not. That's a whole nother sermon. But we see here that God's divine wrath lies, lives. It is ongoing for the ungodly and the godly. There's, there's many times that uh, when I sin and I seek repentance and forgiveness, um, and I still have consequences, right, for my choices made on this earth. Just because I repented doesn't mean there's no consequences. It's not how it works. But there are times that I experience God's grace where I sin and I repent and I'm waiting for the consequences of my actions and I receive grace and mercy. What a blessing. Paul continues to unpack the sinfulness of man and the causes of the sinfulness. And we can see, we are going to see more and more, not only this, this morning, but in the next several messages, what this looks like. Not to us, not to Paul, but to God. Basically, all this foreshadows the final judgment there's a final judgment that will take place. Um, we're going to turn to to Second Thessalonians here. You can put it up there if you want. But um, as we turn and we look at that, there's going to be some in there. But uh, what I want us to continue to understand is is what verse 18, what Paul is really trying to communicate to us, right? That God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And that's what we're going to be transitioning into is the suppression of the truth. And this is really the answer to a lot of our questions when it comes to, man, why do people do what they do? Why, why cannot they, why can't uh, they understand what's, what is so difficult about this or that? 
Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. The coming of the lawless, the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So Satan's coming and he has his power and he gives a false sense of signs and wonders, right? They're false, okay? Verse 10, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God, what? Sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Wow. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Wow. How strong are the words here in this passage in 2 Thessalonians? Have you read this passage before? He starts out by saying, the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. That's why when people come to you like, wow, God spoke to me. Wow, how did his voice sound? And people have this understanding. It's like, God's moving me. God's speaking to me. It's like, great. How did you spend your time in Scripture and in prayer confirming what God has spoken to you? Or God's was like, why, why do I need to do that? And you can take him to this verse. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. We continue to have a misconception of Satan, our enemy, that he is not working in the spiritual realm like God is. And we have no discernment. We ultimately take any quiver in our liver, any random sign, we think it's mystical, and like, oh, this has, must be from God. I need to, I must do this. I must do this. And we don't pray about it. We don't seek God's word, God's counsel, or wise counsel from a spiritual mature brother or sister in Christ. And what do we do? We get led astray and we become the, the what? Basically the definition of the rest of this passage. We get fooled. We get duped. And we see very clearly it says, and with all wicked deception, they've been deceived. For those who are perishing, those who are perishing is a direct, direct reference to those who are not saved and who will not be saved because they, what, refused to love truth. You cannot love God unless you hate sin. They're together. And so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. Wow. So first we see Satan's work, and as Satan dupes them, then God comes in and says, you know what? Mm -mm. Nope. He says, God sends them a delusion. Why? Then they're done. They're not going to be saved. Pastor Raph, how can you say that? God, God loves everybody, and God is this, and God is that. It's like, you, you cannot love God unless you hate sin. We must get the connection. We must understand it. It's not to be hateful people. 
It's not to be judgmental people. God makes the ultimate judgment, not us. But we see very clearly over and over and over again in Scripture, we're going to see very, very clearly in the rest of Romans in the weeks to come how much God hates sin. And it says here, therefore, right? So why is therefore? We go back and look at the previous verses. Because of, the, because of that, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is what? False. What is false? Wow, look at this. Wow, look at that. Look how big their church is. They must be doing something right. Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception, for those who are perishing, mm, because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false. Verse 12, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Doesn't take long to watch social media and see the pleasure and the unrighteousness un, um, unfold. Our society is becoming numb to violence, acts of sin, to murder, theft, all these things. And we begin to see what Paul is saying here in verse 18. Yes, we're still in verse 18, and he says, Right? By their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. The Greek word used here for truth is aletheia. Aletheia. Okay? You know what aletheia is used for? A direct reference for the gospel. When you see the word truth, you need, if, if you can, see what Greek word is used, right, for the word truth and what you're reading. And if it's aletheia, it's they reject the gospel. The truth about God. We can also see it in Colossians 1.5, 1 Timothy 2.4, many other places in Scripture. I'm not going to list them all for you. It would be a good study to look at aletheia. Aletheia, truth, the gospel. And those who suppress the gospel, those who suppress the truth, deny what is made obvious about God. Why? Because Paul is getting ready to make another very bold statement about the gospel, about unrighteousness and sin takes us to verse 19 and 20. Now, as they suppress the truth, okay, as they suppress the truth, why? Because of their unrighteousness and their ungodliness, they suppress the truth, they suppress the gospel. We now go into verse 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You reject and you suppress the truth. You reject and you suppress the gospel. You will not see God through or in creation. You won't. And have you ever wondered when we said, man, can, how do you explain this? Well, there was a boom. There was some cosmic goo that came together and created life. There's so many different beliefs that are out there. It's, it's amazing what our children are taught on, on um, theories versus fact when it comes to creation. And you wonder why. It's like, hey, how can they reject that? How can they reject that? Because they suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. This is known as what? General revelation. Seeing God in creation, general revelation. We're going to look at that now and unpack that quite a bit more. But there's two different types. There's general revelation and special revelation. Just to give you a very um, good example of special revelation, it's this. Your Bible, God's holy word, special revelation. General revelation is seeing God in creation, right? Everywhere we look, it's, it's a, essentially a universal revelation versus a special revelation um, it makes it clear that God exists and that God is the creator of the mountains, of the oceans, of the bugs, of the birds, the an all animals, of vegetation. God is the creator of mankind. God is wise. He's powerful. He's all-knowing. God himself made it plain for mankind to see not only did he make it easy for us to see, but he put it within us to have a desire to seek it. To seek what created all of this. Not ultimately to seek salvation, because we will also see in Romans chapter 8 that we are dead in our trespasses. And we're dead in our trespasses. We don't long to see God. We don't understand God. And why is that? Going all the way back to what we're looking at now. Because they suppress the truth. Thing is, creation is a hard thing for people to grasp and understand because they suppress the truth. Then I remember a few years ago when it came out, intelligent design. You cannot look around and say that this appeared out of nothing. This just randomly by chance happened. And those that are in statistics have done the numbers and it's they're, they're like it's impossible for that to happen. Well, they say, oh, well, it's a miracle. Oh, okay, it's a miracle, so you do believe in God. It's a catch-22. But see, here's the thing. They don't see it that way. Why? Because they suppress the truth. God's universal revelation makes it so clear that God exists and that God is the creator of everything. It can be clearly seen. It can be fully understood. Why? Because God has shown it. God has shown it. God has put it within us. We have a conscience. But see, here's the thing. As God has shown it to everyone, it, it becomes 
difficult for us as believers to fathom or try to process why people don't get it. But Paul lays it out for us here. Verse 19, it says, For that, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God has shown it to them. And this is how he has done it. Through general revelation. As we saw in Romans 3, people do not love God with all that is in them. Nor do they love their neighbor as themselves. Right? What is this a reference to? Matthew 22. People worship and serve things in creation rather than serve and worship the creator. Man, is that more relevant? Is that more apparent now than ever of what people worship, what people are doing? That's why it drives me nuts when people treat their animals like better than human beings, better than children. Um, it, It makes no sense to me. And then we even gone to the extent of putting children on leashes. And I, it makes me so uh, irritated when I see that because it's like if you can't take care of your kids and you have to put them on a leash, don't have children. I'm sorry, that's my personal opinion. If you put your kid on a leash, I mean, that's between you and the Lord. But my, my standings on that is, you know, why are we putting kids on leashes, you know? Uh, it's it's amazing how we uh, began to exchange uh, things and we begin to treat one another and how uh, mankind is treated less than um, animals and things such as this. We treat people like animals and so on and so forth. It just doesn't make sense to me. But when I read this, it makes a lot of sense. Why? Because they suppress the truth. And the thing is, is we need to have an understanding of this because a lot of times people come to this conclusion is, well, the problem is creation. We just, I, I don't see how someone could look at a sunset and think, oh, God made that. Or look at a forest and it's like, wow, that's amazing, God made that. And people have a hard time coming to those conclusions. And the problem is not God's creation as far as, general revelation because it's been easily revealed to them the problem is the sinfulness of mankind it's the sinfulness of god's creation us because people worship and serve things they should not but what truly happens is that we suppress the truth so much we become numb to the moral laws that god has weaved within our very DNA. We become numb to moral law. And in some way in our lives, um, we do this ultimately. Why? So we can serve ourselves. So we can live the way that we want. So we can gratify the desires of the flesh. We suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. One of the things that we need to understand is to not give Satan a foothold into our lives and how we give Satan a foothold into our lives or sin a foothold into our lives is by suppressing the truth. A lot of times, very easily, we begin to, to lie or to deceive ourselves. We're thinking, oh, I don't need to go to church. 
oh, I don't need to read my Bible. I don't need to pray. I don't need to gather and fellowship. All commands directly given by God. And especially in, in our current situation and in our current times that we are in, we are suppressing the truth. No wonder suicide, depression, anxiety, all of these things are at, a, at an all-time high. And all of these things are known, are known, these statistics are known to be lesser within those who go to church. Why? Because that's what God calls us to do. When we suppress the truth, we become blind to the sin and to the truth that God has for us. And so going back to general revelation, we can see God in all of these things and all around us. I, I mean, I have friends that it's just, they stand in awe and wonder literally when they see a beautiful sunset or they see a, a beautiful mountain or or trees or different things. They love being in nature and it's just amazing to them and then it's just a direct correlation with them and, and God. And, you know, to me, it's I, I see that, but I see it in different ways and not as much as, as them. It's a little convicting to me because it's, it's almost one of those moments like, wow, they're so spiritual. Look at, you know, how much God's general creation impacts them. It's like, why doesn't it impact me that way? And, you know, but God reveals himself to me in other ways that impacts me a great deal. So if you're in the, the same boat as me with that, don't, don't feel bad. Don't feel like you're lesser than. But see, here's, here's the thing. And going back to intelligent design, it's very difficult for people to, to excuse that, to be able to look around and say, this came from nothing. This is random chance, right? It, we can't do that. Even evolution it has so many gaps, so many errors in it. It's all based on what? A theory. It's not fact. God can be seen in all creation and even atheists. Atheists wonder, where did all of this come from? And they ask that question. It's very difficult for to get them to admit it, but the ones that are honest, they will admit, like, yeah, I, I do wonder, like, okay, where all, I don't believe in anything, but I do wonder where it all came from. That's the thing that is within them. It is clear that God has planted evidence of his existence in each and every one of us. In the very fiber of our makeup, God has planted that. God has woven us together in that way to, to, to ask those questions, to wonder where this came from or that came from or how did this come to be. Turn with me to Acts 17. Acts 17, verse 22. And I, and I love this account of Paul. Okay, now remember, everywhere Paul went, he caused a revival or a riot, and this is one of those accounts. We're not going to get into that whole account, but here's an account of Paul witnessing to people, getting up and, and preaching to these people. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Aragop, um Arapagus, Arapagus, he said this, Men of Athens, 
I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So he compliments them. He gets their attention, right? And he says this, For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now, he says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of, you, some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art, by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to what? To repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. So we see very clearly, even with Paul, he noticed that. He knew that, right? And this is in Acts. Understanding, look, there, there's a God. You, you, like, there's a God of this, and there's a God of that, and there's a God of this. But there's a God, there's an unknown God out there that created all of this. And he goes, I know who that God is. This is who he is. And he references Jesus Christ. He's the God of all creation. We misunderstand that God reveals himself. I want to look at that more as we go further into verse 20. He reveals himself to everyone. And so as we see, because God has shown it to them, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, right? And we see so clearly that God is in all these things. Right? So they are without excuse. 
As we continue to see, not only is God in all of creation, including us, so how is God in us? It's our conscience. So we see that God has basically um, woven himself to be innately what? For us to have a desire to, right? To seek, wow, where did this all come from? Now that is not salvation, right? That is just something that God has woven us together in that way. So it, it, there should be a, something within us that's like, wonder why, where did all this come from? And then see it in nature, okay? Clearly revealed all in and through God. For God does not bring wrath unjustly. Why do I bring that up? Because here's a question that a lot of us ask that we feel we never get the answer to. For God does not bring wrath unjustly. And some of, may, some of us have, may have already asked this question to ourselves while listening to the sermon. What about those who never hear the gospel? What about those who never hear the gospel? Such as not revealing himself through general or special revelation. And we see, it's like, okay, well... What, how can God bring his wrath, or how can those that perish, how can those that die spend an eternity in hell if they've never received the gospel? Well, the scripture here says they are without excuse. God holds everyone responsible for their refusal, for their uh, lack of acknowledging what he has shown them to bring them to himself through creation. And yes, even those who have so-called never had an opportunity to hear the gospel. A lot of times we think, well, they never had an opportunity to hear the gospel. I remember when I was in Bible college and we had to write a paper on this. Those who never heard the gospel, are they saved? And we had to write a paper on it, um, several pages long, but then we had to publicly post it and defend it. Um, I don't know if any of you have done that before, but it's very interesting when you have 10, 20 people reading your paper and then commenting on it or critiquing it, and you have to defend it, including the professor. Um, And it was interesting because um, there was a majority of the class who gave an answer that was really disturbing to the professor. So the professor wrote a statement addressing the whole class, and the and essentially, there was a, a large group in the class that says, well, if they never had a chance to hear the gospel, then they automatically get to go to heaven. And then the question was, well, if Christ is the only way, then how is that possible? One of the things we need to understand is God reveals himself, right? Not only interwoven within us, but see in, the, 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 in nature and the general revelation around us We can either suppress that or pursue that. We can either suppress that or pursue it. Suppress it or pursue it. And we already see a suppressing of the truth, right? I have a conscience that tells me there's a moral law within me that between right and wrong, I know I'm doing wrong even though No one's telling me that, but there's something within me that knows this is wrong. It feels wrong. I can suppress that 
or pursue that. Suppress it by saying, you know what? I might feel wrong, but it's accepted. It, it's okay. No one's telling me otherwise. I'm just going to keep doing it, even though it feels wrong. Or pursue it. Wow, why does this feel wrong? Why do I feel this way? Why is my conscience telling me this or that? That's why there's so many people out there that are morally good to a certain extent, but eternally condemned because they don't have Jesus Christ. Now, what is my point here? My point is this. If we do not suppress the truth, God will provide a means for salvation. If we don't suppress the truth, then God will provide a means. He's like, okay, then they're pursuing. They're not suppressing. Here's the gospel. That comes in many ways. We're going to look at an example of this very thing here in just a moment. But the thing is this, as we continue to suppress the truth and suppress the truth and suppress the truth and suppress the truth, what happens? We become numb. We become numb. We form a callous heart. We, we form a callous heart. We only care about what we want to care about. We only want to do what we want to do. And it's all right in our own eyes. But it's a suppression of righteousness, of sin, of the truth. It's a suppression of the truth of the gospel of God. God will provide a means for everyone has an opportunity to know the truth, to know the gospel. Everyone. And Paul says here, no one will be with an excuse. You will not have an excuse. And you, when you come before God, when you come before the judgment seat of Christ, there will be no excuse you can give that will justify your actions. Turn me to Acts. Acts chapter 8. It should be up there, I think. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. It's a little long, but bear with me. Acts 8, 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. Okay? There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, Who's Candace? Candace is the queen of the Ethiopians. Who was what? He was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. So he had a very high position underneath the queen. And so he had the, the access to transportation to be able to go to Jerusalem to worship. To worship God. Okay, verse 28. And was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this 
chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now imagine that. This high-ranking eunuch in charge of all the treasure, right? High-ranking position for the queen of all the Ethiopians, right? It's like there's something there. It's like I need to go and I need to go to Jerusalem. There's something about these Jews, right? Maybe he had heard about Jesus, maybe not. But there's something within him to go. And as he did on his way back, he's reading Isaiah and, he, and, he's, and he's reading and looking into the scriptures and God sends Philip. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from this earth. This is the scripture he's reading. What's the first thing we do with, with a new believer or a non-believer and we're trying to share the gospel? Do we take them to, to this passage? Not really, right? John 3.16. Or let's take them over to Romans. Or let's... This is what he was reading. Just shows the power of God. Verse 34, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? It's like, who, who's the prophet Isaiah talking about here? It's about him? It's about someone else? And he goes, it's about who? It's about Jesus. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Wow. Verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. He's excited. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Wow. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if it's a tribe somewhere in the Amazon. God will find, knows, ordains a way for the gospel to come to those people. There is no excuse, none whatsoever. See, the thing is, those who continue and continue and continue to reject and reject why they're suppressing the truth, they're living in sin. And sometimes we wonder, it's like, man, I, I share the gospel with this person, I share the gospel with this person. There's, there's people that I've shared the gospel with 20 times or more. And they still don't believe doesn't matter how many times you share it. It's either they're suppressing the truth 
or they're seeking the truth. Thing is, a lot of times their lives are so comfortable or the, the gratification of their flesh is so strong. They have no desire to seek the truth, to hear the truth, to know the truth. And you wonder why carrying your, carrying your Bible in your classes or having it at work or anything offends people because they suppress the truth. You wonder why churches are being closed all over the place. Why? Because they're suppressing the truth. You wonder why they don't want us to gather because they're suppressing the truth. The thing is, Scripture tells us if God is for us, then who can be against us? Do not be discouraged by any of this, but be faithful, right? Be faithful to God, to righteousness. As people here in Paul's letter have suppressed it, they're condemned for rejecting the Savior, for rejecting Jesus Christ, and not because they never had a chance. It's because they suppress it and reject it. Turn with me to Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter one. I went too far. Second Peter chapter one, verse three. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire he gives us an escape that's christ the thing is is we don't understand that through christ we can escape the evil desires of this corrupt generation in which we live in but we are continued to be programmed we are continued to 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 be um almost trained in a way, I, the word that I'm trying to, to get, I, I can't grasp it right now, but we're, we, are, we are being trained in a way to accept things that are contrary to God's word. Whether it's the music you listen to, the shows that you watch, the social media that you plug into, whatever it may be, it keeps and continues to help you suppress the truth, to be accepting to sin. This has made its way into so many churches. It's appalling. It's sad. Christians, in so many ways, accept things of the world. They've exchanged, a li- they've exchanged the truth for a lie. Paul says, look here. If you love God, you're going to hate sin. 
If you are a righteous person, you're going to hate ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's that simple. So I ask this question. Have you seen sin suppressed? Have you seen the truth suppressed in people, in your own lives? Have you ever wondered why or how can people reject the obvious truth of Scripture? Have you ever wondered? It is all because of sin and the rejection of Christ and the truth. As believers, the best thing we can do is point people to love God and hate sin. Love God and hate sin. If you love me, what does God say? You obey my commands. If you abide in me, I abide in you. Over and over and over in Scripture, it's so clear. Why do we have such a hard time with it? Because there is flesh. There are things within us. Instant gratification. Gratification of the flesh. The world telling us it's okay. Our minds telling us we're better than this person. Thing is, these are all, all forms of suppressing the truth. Do you love God and hate sin? Can't have one without the other. We're going to close with this, Ephesians chapter 5. If you're uh, still in Peter, you can turn left. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Pay very close attention. I'm going to read several verses here out of Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 6. It says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become par partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is, what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because, what? The days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand that the will of the Lord, what the will of the Lord is. Take no part, it says. Expose them, it says. Walk carefully, it says. Use your time wisely, it says, and be wise 
to be in the Lord's will? Do you hate sin? Might be an easy answer to say that you love God, but do you hate sin? We're always asking and saying to reflect on your own lives. Do you love God? Do you follow his commands? Do you hate sin? Do you take no part in it? Do you expose it? Do you walk carefully? Do you use your time wisely? Do you search and seek to be wise and discern the Lord's will and path for your life? It's a convicting message, I know. But it's God's word, not mine. And like I said before, Paul is not going to let up here. He's going to continue. And he's going to get more graphic. And he's going to give more detail. And he's going to be more specific. Are we suppressing sin? Or are we suppressing the truth? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for all that you've given us. Lord, I know this is a a hard message for some of us to hear, for some of us to listen to. I do not apologize for your word ever. But if I have been overbearing in any way, please forgive me. Lord, I only ask, my only desire is that we would be more like Christ, that we would love you more, And part of loving you more is hating sin. So Lord, give us the strength. Give us the discernment. Bring things into the light. Expose them. Ultimately, drawing us nearer to you. Ultimately, shaping and molding us to be more like your son. So Lord, thank you for loving us, even though we fail so much. You are so gracious and merciful. And we worship you and love you more and more each day because of it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.